Why is salvation necessary? Because of man's sinful condition. How does the New Testament, especially in the fullness of revelation, describe man? He is spiritually dead, totally depraved, that is produced moral inability. Not only does he have a problem with his heart, he has a problem with God's law. He has broken God's law. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now your responsibility is to deepen in your understanding of basic doctrine so that you can, these are just simplified skeletons, if you will, and your responsibility is to put the flesh of the Word of God with consistent reading of good theology and the Scriptures so that you can take high theology, if you will, and bring it down here where a child could understand it. That is the responsibility of the preacher, so that people understand clearly. We're not trying to impress people. We're not trying to use big words. We're not trying to show off our intelligence. Our desire is to connect and to communicate with men's mind, their heart, and their conscience. And if God is not working in your own mind, in your own heart, and your own conscience, and you do not have a deep, expanding, clear understanding of solid theology, you will not be able in a simplified way, as Calvin said, with brevity, simplicity, and clarity, communicate the Word of God to the people of God as well as to lost men. When a doctor, if he's honest, looks at an x-ray, he sees a man has cancer and he knows there's no hope and in six weeks he's going to die, He has the hard task of going back in and sitting down eyeball to eyeball and saying this, my friend, you've got cancer and you are going to die. And if you love men's souls with compassion, sensitivity, and tenderness as a spiritual doctor, you must give a proper diagnosis and you can't tickle men's ears. You must tell them the truth. My friend, you are under the wrath of God. You are connected to your first father, Adam. You are under God's law. You are in a shameful position. And there is one hope. Your responsibility is to take the truth of God and the law of God to apply it to the heart and the conscience of man. The old Puritan said this, You must go for the conscience. You must go for the conscience. It's not enough to put truth in their ear. That's where it begins. But you must take the word of God and go to men's conscience. You take the law of God and all of its spirituality and go down deep into men's conscience. Listen carefully. China is an honor-shame society. India is an honor-shame society. Men aren't concerned about their relationship with God. Well, now, India is a religious country, and they worship idols, and they do believe to a certain degree regarding these things, but it's perverted and distorted. But all men understand law, if you will explain it to them. As I said before, you are an Indian. You were born in India. India has law. You were born as a citizen of India and you are under Indian law, right? You are obligated to obey law. If you break the law of the land, what happens? You have to pay a penalty, right? Men understand law. Paul wrote Romans. He said both Jew and Greek are all under law, all in sin, all in Adam, all under wrath, all condemned justly. Greco-Roman world was a honor-shame society, but Paul pulled them to the law of God. You understand what we're saying? With sensitivity and with wisdom, 
you approach men not only as to their honor and shame horizontally before other men, but you have to bring them to what is their deepest, most foundational problem. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, study the prepositions before God, toward God, in the sight of God. The issue in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is God and man's relationship to God. You understand what we're saying? And so you must, by the grace of God, under the power of the Spirit of God, with a fearless courage from God, but with a compassionate sensitivity toward men, to be able with graciousness and directness explain to them their true condition so they understand lack of money, lack of face, it's not a lack of education, but big, big problems for all men. Only God can impress upon them they have a greater problem. Your responsibility is to so use the Word of God, the truth of God, the Gospel of God, and the call of God in order to show men their problem. If we come back again, we'll have an opportunity to look more deeply at these things we are simply surveying them because we least need to have a basic understanding of the true condition of those people out on the street, what we formerly were, as our brother told us this morning, and what is the condition of our children in regards to their present state. You need to see men as they really are. And they are spiritually dead, totally depraved, morally unable under the law of God and legally guilty, all men have broken God's law. Man has a problem with his heart. Man has a problem with the law of God. And not only that, number five, man is in what we call spiritual bondage. And bondage to two things. What are they? John chapter 8, he that commits sin is a slave of sin. Jews didn't like to hear that. Abraham is our father. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Conveniently forgot 400 years of history in Egypt. He said, I'm your father, you would believe in me because Abraham saw my day and was Stop for a minute and do a little biblical theology. Where did Abraham see the day of Christ? Abraham saw my day and he was glad. You think about that and tell me next time. Studying biblical theology will help you. Listen carefully. There was a man that came forth from God. By the Spirit of Born of a virgin. Who was it? Who are the five important men in the Old Testament? Tell me. Huh? Louder. Who are the five most important men in the Old Testament? Adam. Noah. Abraham, Moses, David. Why? Because they all had a connection to Christ. He is the last Adam. He is the true Noah. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the true Moses. He is the son of David. But not glorious. And we could spend a year right there, couldn't we? Listen carefully. Man is in bondage. D-O-N-D-A-G-U. That's right, isn't it? The two things. He's in bondage to the devil. John chapter 8. He's, I mean bondage to sin. He that commits sin is a slave to sin. And number two, he's in bondage to the devil. You are of your father, the devil. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 25. Having escaped the snare of the devil who has been captive to do his will. 
Now listen carefully. Your responsibility, you're already familiar with things. You can write it in your notebook and put it in your book. But your responsibility is to flesh out these things and to bring together the Word of God, both theologically and biblically, so that when we talk about depravity regarding the effect of sin upon man's heart, you can rattle off by the grace of God five or six clear verses from the Word of God that plainly explain the condition of man's heart or the condition of man's mind or the problem with man's will or the issues concerning his conscience. Listen carefully. I go all over India and China and I see young men, even preachers, they have their nose in their phone. Get your nose out of your phone and get it in the Bible. Do you spend as much time in the Bible as you do looking at that machine? I hope you do. Now that's a wonderful invention. It's an expression of the image of God, is it not? For the monkey couldn't do that. Man made that. He thinks it's because of himself. A man is a tragic genius. He's created in the image of God. That's why he can make a phone like that. And it can be a tool. Get your face out of your phone and get it in the Bible and get your butt off the sofa looking at TV and get on your knees in prayer want to be holy, you want to be a man of God, you want to live for God, you want the anointing of God, you're not going to get it sitting on your butt right here listening to an old man. There's one place that's in secret. Alone with God on your knees. Do you live on your knees? Do you live on your knees? Do you live on your knees? Holy men live in secret with God. Holy men live on their knees. Holy men live in this book. Holy men know the living God. Holy men have communion with Jesus Christ. Holy men know something of the power of the Spirit of God in prayer. Because they live on their knees. Listen carefully. You get this truth from here to here on your knees. You know this. He that commits sin is a slave to sin. Formerly, Paul said, you were slaves of sin. Romans chapter 6. Before, he said, you were slaves of sin. Now you're slaves of righteousness. Having been freed from sin. Romans chapter 6 talks about our former state as being enslaved to sin. John chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and various verses talk about being enslaved and held captive by the devil to do his will. You are not a child of Abraham, he said. If you were Abraham's children, you would have rejoiced in me. Abraham, have you figured that out yet? I want you to tell me later. How did Abraham see the day of Christ? Listen carefully. When we talk about the doctrine of salvation, and here we're just skimming the surface, but these aren't just words on a board. This is the condition of your children if they're unconverted, your parents if they're unconverted. When you walk out that gate and see those thousands of Indian people made in the image of God, and yet spiritually dead, totally depraved, their mind is darkened, their heart is hardened, their will is bound, their conscience is defiled, they worship themselves, or they live for money, or they worship idols, or they're very superstitious, they have no ability, no power, no desire, no interest in the true things of God, and they don't know it, but they are under the law of God and the wrath of God, and they are enslaved to sin, and they are in Adam. And your responsibility is to understand their condition in your head, to be burdened about it in your heart, and clearly, plainly communicate it to them with love and, 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 and sympathy with your words. Any questions?
God willing, if I ever see you again, we can go a little deeper. The necessity of salvation. All right, let's come to the heart of the matter. My favorite subject. The accomplishment. about one doctrine in systematic theology, a very crucial doctrine. It's at the heart of the message we are to understand and believe and clearly preach. We must understand, first of all, the necessity of salvation because of man's sinful condition. And we could say a lot more about that. Your responsibility, as I said, to study these things and flesh them out so that you not only understand it right here, you feel it right here. Because when you understand it here, and when you feel it here, when you communicate it here, it comes with power, and it comes with conviction, and it comes with authority, whether you speak with a loud voice, or whether you speak with a quiet voice. Different men, different personalities. Not James, is not John, is not Paul. No. Different truth comes through personality. The question is not the volume of the voice. The question is the anointing of the heart, the filling and empowerment of the Spirit of God when you either in prayer or you are speaking to men. You don't have the ministry of the Spirit of God. It's like piling wood up on an altar, but there's no fire that falls. God willing, in the future, if we ever get together again, we can talk about that vital necessity. Number two, the accomplishment of salvation. How is it accomplished? By Christ, perfect obedience. I know you're familiar with this. Now, when the Bible talks about the work of Christ, it uses different words. It's a work of atonement. It's a work of sacrifice. It's a work of substitution. It's a work of redemption. It's a work of pitiation. It's a work of reconciliation. But if there's one large category that encapsules or covers the entirety of the work of Christ, it could be described as a work of obedience in his life and in his death. Let's look at a few verses that you already familiar with. Of course, we turn to Philippians and chapter 2. Very quickly, you understand this important passage. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told about Christ's pre-existent, exalted position, His willing, humble, human condescension. And in so doing that, it says, it was on account of obedience. Notice what it says in verse 8, the conclusion of his condescension and humiliation being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus said when he stood upon the threshold of eternity before and that mystery of inhabiting the womb of the virgin, Father, thy law is written in my heart. I delight to do thy will. A body you have prepared for me. And in the mystery of the ages, eternal deity joins himself to sinless humanity and womb a virgin. And when he was born, he was born under the law. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4, verse 4, God sent forth His Son, eternal deity, born of a woman, sinless humanity, born where? Under the law. If you do not understand Christ's relationship to the law of God, you cannot understand the fullness of His Everything Jesus did in His life and in His death was in relationship to the law of God. What do we mean? In His life, 
He perfectly obeyed its righteous requirements, and in his death he took upon himself the penalty and condemnation that the law demanded from sinners. You understand what we say? Everything Christ did in his life and in his death was a work of obedience. In Hebrews chapter 5, look at it very clearly. Just asking this question, how do we describe the work of Christ? How was our salvation accomplished? Generally speaking, the the broadest category that describes the work of Christ is a work of obedience. That's the first thing we need to understand. Now, under that obedience is a well glorious accomplishment. I always do those things pleasing to the Father. Jesus said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in the book of Hebrews, I believe in chapter 5, notice what it says, verse 7, you're familiar with the verse. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears as the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned what? He learned obedience from the things he suffered. And what was the result? Verse 9, and having been made perfect. Now listen carefully. At every point of our Lord's life, his obedience was perfect. But it wasn't complete until he went to the cross. You understand what we're saying? His work of obedience was both in his life and in his death. Our salvation flows forth both from life and from his death. Our justification as to its grounds flows both from his righteous life and from his sacrificial death. He was obedient in his life to the law of God, pleasing the Father every point of his life. He was obedient. He circumcised the eighth day according to the law. And when he was 12 years old, he returned from Jerusalem and went to his parents, honoring father and mother. When he was, John said, I should be baptized by you. What did Jesus say? Baptize me, John. Why? That we fulfill all righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is a perfect conformity to the law of God. You understand that? That's what righteousness is. A perfect conformity to the law of God. God's standard, God's holiness, God's righteousness, man's requirement, man's duty is revealed in the law of God. We were born under the law. We broke the law. Adam broke the law. Israel broke the law. We broke the law, the last Adam, the true Israel. Our representative did what we could not and did not do in his life by perfectly obeying the law of God. You understand what we're saying? When we discuss the work of Christ, before we begin to talk about the detailed particulars of what was accomplished on the cross, we need to understand that this broadest category is a work of obedience. For example, turn to Romans chapter 5. Very important, very familiar verses that we've looked at many times in this place. Romans chapter 5, along with Romans chapter 3, are two of the most important passages in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is describing the work of Christ in its broadest terms and expressions as a work of obedience. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and following, he is describing the work of Christ more particularly and specifically as to its accomplishments on the cross. You must be very familiar with the truth of Romans chapter 5 generally because it paints a big picture and the truth that we can extract from that rich passage in Romans chapter 3 in regards to the work of Christ. So, Again, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 5, we've looked at this verse many times. Again, it's one of the most important passages in the book of Romans because Paul is talking about what? The source of our justification. That's what he's talking about. 
And in describing the source of our justification, he compares Christ to another man as being the source of our condemnation. You understand what we're saying? So we have here Paul describing the two most important men that ever lived. History is the story of two men. Listen carefully. History is the story of two men. First Adam and the last Adam because they had the greatest influence on humanity. And the Apostle Paul is describing the work of Christ as a work of obedience as the source of our justification and he compares it to the work of Adam as a work of disobedience as the source of our condemnation. And he's painting a big, big, big picture and it's a very complex, rich passage that Paul develops here. And again, as we often do when we are together, I want to break down in that simple chart form that many of you remember before so that we can get an idea of exactly what Paul is saying. As I've mentioned many times, and some of you guys that have heard me before, there's a key, a key, that unlocks this passage. Romans chapter 5. And if you don't have that key, you can't understand the passage. What is that key? Two words. Imputation and representation. Burn those words in your head. Imputation and representation. You don't understand those two words, and if you don't have got key, you'll get lost in this passage. We don't have time in detail to explain exactly what that means, but you understand the Bible talks about the principle of imputation, which means a legal transfer from one account to another. You understand what we're saying? A legal transfer from one account to another. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned. It was imputed to him for righteousness. Genesis chapter 5, Psalm 32. David said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, to whom he does not legally charge iniquity. Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest would take the scapegoat, and what would he do? He would lay his hands upon that goat. You remember the story? And he would transfer the guilt of Israel's sin to the goat. Now, did that transfer affect that goat's physical nature? Still a goat. It was a symbolic transfer of the guilt of Israel's sin upon the goat. That's a principle of imputation. You understand what we're saying? And the goat carried away, bore the guilt of Israel's sin symbolically in the wilderness. So Abraham, it said, believed God and it was reckoned, imputed, charged to him as to righteousness sake. David said, blessed be the God that does not impute or charge the guilt of my sin. What is guilt? It's a legal obligation to make a payment. You break the law of India, you go before the judge, he examines the evidence, he declares you Guilty. What does that mean? You are now legally obligated to make a payment. And you have to make a payment. Little crime, little payment. Big crime, you're gone. Romans chapter 4. Paul picks up the picture of Abraham and again and again. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord credits, imputes, or transfers Righteousness. The little book of Philemon. You remember the story? Onesimus the slave has run away uh, from Philemon, who is Paul's friend. And the providence of God, he ends up in Rome, uh, where perhaps he already knew of Paul. But in the providence of God, he found Paul. Apparently, he was wonderfully converted. Paul wants to send him back to uh, Philemon, not as a slave, but as now beloved brother. And it's one of the most interesting Letters in the New Testament in regards to the spiritual, legal, psychological, and emotional pressure that Paul brings to bear upon his old friend in regards to receiving back this runaway slave. And the last thing he says is what? And if he owes you anything, 
That's imputation. And a long time ago, a righteous man said this, Father, if they owe you anything, charge it to my account. That's imputation. If you don't understand that principle, then there are three great imputations in the Bible, are there not? What are they? Number one, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all his posterity. Number two, the guilt of our sin was imputed to Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Some preachers preach this. I've asked many of you many times. Some people say this, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Christ died on the cross, he was actually the most sinful, polluted, vile sinner that ever lived. Is that true? Listen carefully. God did not transfer the pollution of our sin to Christ. He imputed the guilt of our sin. That is, our legal obligation to make a payment was charged to Him. The pollution and corruption of our sin was not imparted or transferred to Him. The Bible says He offered Himself without blemish to God. And when he died on the cross and when he shed his blood and it was pouring out of that pure, perfect heart and those holy veins, the Bible says you are not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold from your previous way of life, but with what? With precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. He did not become a sinner. He had legally charged to him the guilt of our sin. Do you understand what we're saying? And the third great imputation is what? His righteousness was legally charged and imputed or transferred to our account. So our legal record full of sin pronounced guilty by God has now been wiped away clean by the blood of Christ and God has declared not guilty, and that's one half of justification. You know this story. Romans chapter 5. Two men. Who are they? Listen carefully. The principle of representation. Two men represented two groups. Who did Adam represent? Who? All humanity. Ah. Legally, by representation, all men are united to Adam. Legally and physically. But Paul is not talking about here our physical union to Adam. That's not the issue here. He's talking about a representative principle. The Bible says, all that are in Adam die. What does it mean to be in Adam? It means to be united to Adam. How are men united to Adam? They're united to Adam in two ways. Legally by representation and physically by ordinary generation or physical birth. But he's not talking about our physical connection to Adam here. He's talking about a legal principle, a legal issue. You understand what we're saying? Who did Christ represent? Believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all in Adam die. All in Christ will be made alive. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be joined to Christ. We are joined to Christ in two ways. What are those ways? Legally, by representation, and spiritually, by regeneration. You understand what we're saying? Now, all men have a physical connection to Adam by physical birth and generation. All men have a spiritual, all believers have a spiritual connection to Christ by spiritual birth and regeneration. All men are united to Adam, but not all men are united to Christ. The principle of representation. You understand what we're saying? Two men, two groups. The simplified explanation of a complex and important truth. Both men accomplished two works. 
two works. Closed on a diversion uh, after uh, verse 12 down to about verse 17, and he picks up his discussion again in verse 18. Look at it. Chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, let's look more closely at verse 19. It's a summary. What was the work that Adam did? Disobey. You see that? By one man's distance. Look at the rest of the verse. What was the work that Christ did? Obedience. This man represented these people. And he did this work. This man represented these people. And he did this work. And it brought about two results. Look at the verse again. What was the result of Adam's disobedience? Condemnation. You see that? What was the result of Christ's work? Look at the verse. Justification, our righteousness. You understand what Paul is doing here? He's comparing two men, Adam and Christ. These two men represented two groups. Adam represented all humanity. All humanity is united to Adam in two ways. Physically, by birth, he's our first father. I told you many times, you're an Indian. I'm an American. You got dark hair. I got white hair. You got darker skin. I got lighter skin. You got brown eyes. I got colored eyes. What color is your blood? 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 You're Nepali. What color is your blood? What color is my blood? God made from one blood every family that dwells upon the face of the earth. We all got red blood. We all got one father, and we all got sinful hearts. Paul's not talking about our physical connection to Adam. Don't forget your teeth. Representation. This man represented these people. He accomplished this work. It brought this result for all he represented. You understand what we're saying? This man represented these people. He accomplished this work and it brought this result to all he represented. You understand what we're saying? Now this is the most important story in all the world. The story of history is the story of two men. Any questions? You understand what we're saying? What does it mean to be in Adam? It means to be united to Adam. All humanity is united to Adam in two ways. Legally, by representing Father, he's our federal head. And physically, by ordinary generation, our physical birth, Paul is not talking about our physical union with Adam or even our spiritual union with Christ in regeneration. He's not talking about those truths right now. He's talking about a legal issue, the key to which understanding is representation and imputation. And so this man represented these people. He did this work. It produced condemnation and guilt. And the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all the people he represented. This man represented this group of people. He did this work. It produced justification. And the righteousness that he accomplished by his obedience was imputed to all those he represents. One man is the source of our condemnation. The other man is the source of our justification. You understand what we're saying? In a nutshell, that's what Paul's arguing here. He's talking about the source of our justification. And the source of our justification is outside of ourselves. It is not our own obedience. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our own good works. It's not our own perfection. It's the obedience, perfection, and righteousness of another man that we can't earn, we can't work for, we can't buy, we can't produce. We receive it as a gift by God's grace. 
the source, the first source of humanity's condemnation is not because of their sinful nature that they inherit from Adam. It's not because of the sinful acts they produce as a result of that sinful nation. Paul is saying the source of humanity's condemnation is outside of themselves. By the guilt of their first father that is imputed to them on account of his disobedience to the law of God, thou shalt not eat that tree. He failed the test. He was guilty. His eyes were open. He was shamed. He tried to hide himself. Guilt, fear, and shame was evident. And the guilt, the legal condemnation that fell upon Adam as he acted as a representative for all humanity was legally transferred and imputed to those he represented. This is not a fairy tale. This is the story of history. And if you don't understand who Adam was and what Adam did and our union with Adam and the consequences of Adam's sin as both through our legal guilt and our sinful nature, and you cannot understand what Christ did as the last Adam, as the source not only of our legal righteousness, but of our new nature. So listen carefully, Paul is not talking about sinful nature or actual righteousness here. He's talking about legal guilt and legal righteousness. The issue is, what is the source of our justification? The source of our justification is outside of ourselves. It's a righteousness that He accomplished by His own obedience that He will give to all that He represents. And the source of humanity's condemnation, first of all, is outside of Himself on account of what His federal head, His first father, His legal representative on their behalf did accomplish and His guilt was transferred to all humanity, to all Indians, to all Americans, to all Africans, to all and every one that was legally united to Him. That is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5 in a nutshell. Two men representing two groups that accomplished two works that produced two results and it ends up in two final destinations. Or two final consequences. Look at verse 21. What's the final consequence or destination for all those that are guilty in Adam? One word. Death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. Are you talking here primarily about eternal? What is physical death? The separation of the soul from the body. What is spiritual death? The separation of the soul from God. For men right now spiritually dead. What is eternal death? Separation of body and soul forever from God. And so what he's saying here, the ultimate destination and final consequence of the guilt of Adam's disobedience that is charged to all he represents is death. The final result and consequence of the Lord Jesus Christ's obedience on behalf of those he represented is what? Eternal life. Eternal life. But we're trying to answer this question. How is our salvation accomplished? And our first broad category is the work of obedience. Christ, by His obedience in His life and in His death to the law of God, He's born under the law of God. When Christ came out of Mary's womb, He came out with a sinless nature and a pure heart. But what was waiting for Him? He was born where? Under the law. And what is the requirement of the law? Perfect obedience. Every day, every hour, every word, every act, every thought of our righteous representative in his life as he moved through this life under the law of God always did the things pleasing to the Father Every day his obedience was perfect, but it wasn't complete until he took it to the cross. This is the standard of God. This is the life of Jesus Christ. 
And every day, every hour, every word, every thought, every motive, every deed was in perfect conformity to the law of God. That is righteousness. He earned it. He worked for it. He sweat for it. He bled for it. Not for himself, but for those he represented. And one half of justification is what? A declaration of righteousness. Is it your righteousness? Whose is it? Where did he get it? In his life, by his obedience. Listen carefully. You were saved by his life. And his So when we talk generally speaking about the work of Christ, broad category is the work of obedience. You understand what we're saying? Now we've simplified in a first or second grade level here a very complex and important passage, but I believe we've captured the, the, the gist, you know that word, the, the heart of what Paul is saying. So if you lose your key, you can't unlock the path. Two principles. Representation. This man represented these people. This man represented these people. This man disobeyed. This man obeyed. This brought condemnation to all that he represented. And how was that guilt transferred? First of all, not by physical descent through the blood but by legal imputation through representation. Adam sinned, his guilt was immediately transferred to all of this posterity. If I was telling you a bunch of stories, it'd be more interesting. I can't think of anything more important than all of this. This is the story of history. You understand what we're saying? Any questions? A broad stroke. Yes, brother. The new creation does several things. Remember, depravity affected the mind, the heart, the will, and the conscience, and the body, the eyes, the ears, the tongue. When a man is born again, he's a new creature, and he's created after the image of him who created him. So God gives him an enlightened new mind so that he can, he can understand. He gives him a renewed heart so that he can love God. He gives him a free will so that he can freely choose God. He gives him a cleansed conscience so he can righteously judge. Now he still has remaining sin. But now he's a new man. God has illuminated his mind. He can understand. He has cleansed his heart by faith. He can love God. He has freed, taken the shackles of bondage off of his will. He can, from that point on, freely choose to obey his heavenly Father. As obedient children, Peter said, and his conscience has now been cleansed. And if he maintains a sensitive conscience, then he will be able to discern between right and wrong and walk in the way of holiness. Yes, man now has not just relative freedom of choice, but he has a renewed mind, a new heart, a free will, and a cleansed conscience. This is the work of God in regeneration and sanctification that changes a man's nature. We're not talking about that in Romans 5. He's not talking about a change in a man's nature. Justification is not a change in a man's nature. It's a change in man's legal status, legal position. Now, in union with Christ, he not only gives him a new status by justification, but he gives him a new nature by regeneration. This is the source of our justification, and our union with Christ in regards to the new birth is the source of our sanctification. We'll not have time to talk about union with Christ, but it's one of the blessed truths that is woven all through the New Testament. But we're talking here about a legal connection to Christ. And what he accomplished by obedience to the law in his life earned a practice of full legal righteousness that he will transfer to our account and declare us not guilty, legally righteous, 
not on account of a new nature or our righteous acts, but because of the work of Christ in his life. That may not mean much to you today. My friends, when you get to heaven, you see that man. You see the marks on his body. You'll be glad. It says, when he showed them his hands and feet, they were glad. You hear that? You're saved by his life. And you're saved by his Amen. Thank God. Old John Murray, an old English professor that taught at Westminster and Seminary for years, on his deathbed, sent a telegram to his old friend, Gresham Meacham. And it said this, Thank God for the active What did he mean by that? The Bible and theologians talk about active and passive obedience of Christ. Now that means that in his death he was passive entirely. He was acting in his death. But in relationship to the law of God in his life, he actively obeyed the requirements of the law. And in his death, he took upon himself willingly and bore the curse and condemnation of the law that we deserve. And what Gratian, what Murray was saying was this. My justification is not just grounded in the death of Christ. That just removes the penalty of sin for which we shall sing hallelujah forever. But he said, thank God on his death for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Because he said, therein was a perfect righteousness accomplished. He lived for you. He obeyed the law for you. He did what Adam did not do. Israel could not do. We could never do. He was born under the law. And every word, every thought, every deed, every act, he earned, he earned a perfect righteousness for those he represented. And you get to heaven. You'll know fully how much, how much he owed. When he walked those dusty roads, when he rode that donkey, when he slept on the ground, when he was abused by men, when he always did those things pleasing to the Father, every moment the law of God was over his head. And everything he did was pleasing to God, and on behalf of those he represented, he accomplished the perfect righteousness he will give to anyone that by faith receives him. That is justification. A declaration of a righteousness that is not your own. My friend, hear me. There's a man in heaven. Are you listening to me? There's a man in heaven. And he's perfectly righteous. Having accomplished an obedience to God's law, born the full way to the wrath of the Almighty God upon His holy head and shed precious blood that alone can redeem our worthless and sorry souls. And when you get to heaven, you will see that man and you will say this. There is my righteousness. There is my righteousness. There is my righteousness. Let's pray.